Thanks for joining us on our walk through the Apostle Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. We'll see the many cultural similarities between the Pacific Northwest and ancient Greece, as well as being challenged in how we are designed to live out the gospel through the local church. In the first mini-series, we will look to the first four chapters where Paul deconstructs the counterfeit places we find meaning and significance, and makes his case for why Christ is the greatest person for us to look to for our status and hope for the future. For more information, join us on Sundays in downtown Bellevue at 9 or 11 a.m. or visit www.doxa-church.com. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10 through 17. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right. Good morning, Doxa family. Good to be with you. If you are newer here, my name is Tim Patton. I'm one of the elders in the East region, living on the east of the east side, and serve on the staff team as well. Uh, privilege to get to share with you from God's Word this morning. Super excited for that opportunity. Uh, we're in week two of our, uh, of our series in 1 Corinthians. We're looking at this through the lens of a gospel-formed church. And so last week, we just kicked the letter off. And this week, we're going to get right into the meat of some things. You know, last week was about kind of buttering up that top layer. And, and really, this week, it, there's something coming through. And Paul's not going to pull any punches with the church because he loves them. And so we're going to get right in. I'm going to pray first, and then uh, I'm going to ask you to join me in that. And then we'll jump right into our text. Father, thank you for the chance to be in your word. We want to be a people who enjoy and submit to your word. We thank you, God, that what you have written to your church so long ago is still fresh and applicable and important for us today. This topic in particular, we just long for you to continue to work in us and through us and that we would see change, that we would see the fruit that we believe you actually do want for your people and and make possible. So help us, Lord, to hear your word, to be challenged by it, to be changed and shaped from it. Pray you'd use me and and this time to, to do so. We give ourselves to you for this, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, well, our first verse this morning uh, is gonna kick off a major theme and it's gonna get touched on over the next four chapters. It's the underlying issue that ends up being so much of what Paul is gonna talk about throughout the whole letter. It's gonna cover everything. You could trace it back to uh, food offered to idols or spiritual gifts or any number of other things that he's gonna get into. And so it's an important one. It's important to pay attention. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you all agree. And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. He's making his appeal to them. It's an appeal, right? He's not saying, I command you, I demand this of you, do this thing, or when I get back, 
It's coming. No, it's I appeal to you, brothers, brothers and sisters. It's a kin relationship that Paul is evoking in us that we would actually want to hear from him, that he's coming at it from a posture of love, of pastoral care, of relationship. That's where he, that's where he comes at it. And it's, so he gets the conversation started, but he's gonna bring them to this idea of power. He says, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's power, there's real power in the name of Jesus Christ. Paul and the Corinthians know that full well. Paul knows that they're gonna need that kind of power to be able to respond to what he's gonna say to them. And he knows that that power is made available to them in church, good news. That same power is made available to us so that we can likewise respond as well. They're not gonna be able to do this on their own. This is not about let's muscle up and get in a circle and sing Kumbaya together. That's not Paul's aim. He knows this is gonna take heart transformation, internal transformation of the heart only through the power of the name of Jesus Christ. And it's only the name of Jesus Christ and his power that can unify such a diverse people. I mean, look around us here even now. We're from all over the world. We have different backgrounds, different experiences, different things that we come into each conversation with. What's the one thing that has this people, you all, me with you, all gathered here together today around? One person, the name of Jesus, that's right. That's what gathers the church. It's the only thing strong enough. It's the only power real enough to bring such a diverse people together. I don't know if you do this, but sometimes I'll pause during a a missional community moment where we're doing family meal together and you kind of take inventory of who's around at the table. It's interesting to think about who's with you. I remember there was a group um, a while back where it was, you know, we had some single single folks. We had married, no kids, married one kid, uh, a single mom, a couple of kids. We had our uh, multi-felon convict who was just out of jail. He had gotten miraculously saved and now he was couch surfing through our apartments, kind of trying to get his life back to, on track and, you, and you're having a meal again and you sit around and you go, what in the world would bring all of us together? Like I would never have otherwise known you all except for Jesus Christ. Jesus is what brings the church together. He's what brings us together. And so Paul is gonna make his appeal through that name and with that power. He appeals to them that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. And like Jeff said last week, this is, there's a number of letters that have gone back and forth between the church and Paul. They've written to him and asked some specific and important questions that he's gonna get after in the coming, in the coming weeks, we'll get after him, that he gets after in his letter. Um, and they matter, but he's able to kind of read between the lines, to see past the words and see the heart, see the heart of the issue in the people that he cares about so much because there's this report to them, uh, to him from Chloe's people. See, Chloe's people, and uh, you know, she's kind of an interesting person. She was a businesswoman, we think, and she had interest probably in Corinth and Ephesus. She had people, so she was a big deal in that regard. I don't, I don't have people. Um, but so she's a thing and was, you know, definitely had some power. And, and you know, I, I would like to think that between her or them, they just couldn't stomach the hypocrisy. That there was this church that Paul was bragging on in Ephesus that that just wasn't what they saw when they got there. And they had to go back and forth and bring this report. And, and in the midst of that, we've got a message within a message here. 
There's a message of grace that we're gonna be just threading through this whole letter because it's a grace of God that their underreported brokenness would be revealed. It's a grace of God that he would leave their sin, that he would not leave their sin unaddressed. It's a grace of God that these things come about. It's a good thing. It's for their benefit and it's for our benefit too. The Lord says in Hebrews 12, 6, that he disciplines those he loves. It's an act of his love when our junk comes out and is on display for the church to deal with. So it's a good thing. It's, a, it's meant to be a part of how we live together and what happens when we are together. So it was for their benefit, Doxa, and it was for our benefit too. I can't imagine that Chloe got invited to too many more parties, at least not for a while, right? That's kind of a, there's a burden to bear when you're the one who's got to deal with the, the sin. And yet Paul's not ashamed for her. He doesn't even feel, he just, he's not, not going to hold it back. He's like, this is where I heard this from. I love you guys. Why, what is going on? That's not right. He's unashamed. He's unashamed for her. He's unashamed of the grace of God at work in their life. His aim for them as God's people was harmony. Not unison, not same mind, same judgment doesn't mean say the exact same things, be the same person. No, it was to work together in complementary ways. The gospel is at the same time, it's unified. It's also diverse. It's not making us into this, the same exact person. It's trying to unify us. It is unifying us. It humbles us to see the good, to affirm that good. And to be challenged to be better, to be more diverse, to be more of what we are not. Their, their problem wasn't theological differences. It was human preferences. It wasn't likely overt campaigns with like banners, vote for Paul, vote for Apollos. It, it was a subtle, slow, self-selected drifting of the heart. Where they began to separate themselves from each other, just defining a little bit so that they could kind of begin to put each other in these little camps. And Maybe it was overt in terms of they saw it or not. I don't know, but they wouldn't admit it. They certainly didn't ask Paul about that in their letter to him, right? It wasn't, Paul, what do we do about all this like pride and arrogance and, and divisions among us, right? No, he, but he knows he's got to get after that. So it was enough to encumber and inhibit their witness to a watching world. And Paul is hungry for, his, for the church that he is a part of, that he got to pour into to witness differently and to witness in truth about what God is like. So this subtle, slow drifting of the heart happens and it creates these splintered, fractured groups within the church. And this is where we get the word dissension or divisions. We get, it's a schismatic or we get the word schism. It's to literally cut apart, to, to actually chop up. Just pause for a minute and think about that. Right, the church, this, this is the severity of division in the church. We might think like, oh, it's a title, divisions in the church. Yeah, we all have it, let's move on. Well, well, wait, 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 family, let's think for a second. Divisions in the church, schism, cutting apart. The church is what? It's the body of Christ. It is meant to be made whole. It is, it is, it is equivalent to saying, let's get Jesus back. Let's throw him on the butchering block. Let's chop him up and divvy him out. I mean, of course not, right? As his bride, as those he, he, that he has loved, would we want that for him? No, no, we wanna be unified. Every week we take communion to remind ourselves that his body was already broken, that his blood was already shed and poured out. We do not want to in any way bring that about again. That was enough, that was enough. And so we're now meant to tell a different story. Yes, that happened and we tell that story, 
But now we tell a new story about his unity, about his love, about how, he, how that brought us together and about how now we are one in Christ. Paul says, what I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or I follow Cephas or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Right, rhetorically asking him. And here's where our brokenness really goes on display. Stephen Hume talks about it this way. He says, what's happening here is that there is a horizontal factionalism, a patronage from self-validation. Okay, patronage is an attempt at self-validating by means of another person's success and status. And this happens all the time, right? I went to this school. I worked at this place. I played on this team. I was raised in this way. And, and all of that, it, it kind of sounds like you're praising the institution, but really what are we doing? We're praising ourselves. We're propping ourselves up. It's, if you like something about that, but you can throw that on me because that's what I'm like, because I'm with them. And it's just this, we begin to try to find self-validation by putting and looking and hoping in something else, an institution. But, uh, and Um says this, he says, patronage is our escapist fix to numb the suspicion and fear. There's something wrong in the world and it might be us. We attach ourselves to surrogate saviors who ultimately crumble under our weight. Right? It can't bear the weight of what we are hoping in. It was never meant to. Christ didn't come to be a patron. He came to be a savior. That's the hope that we have. He didn't come to figure out a way for us to prop ourselves up. He came, he actually is the one that then lifts us up. And it's so different. This horizontal factionalism comes from a vertical fracture. Like we talked about in our Relate series, if you were with us, we talked about how when we look around us, our horizontal relationships that are broken or, or just uh, hurting, it's pointing us, it's reminding us, it's telling us that there is a more important and primary relationship, a vertical one between us and God that is fractured, that is mended, needs mending. And so uh, Um says that to, to unify these various factions within a community, there needs to be a shalomic vision that is big enough for everyone. Because in our factions, we've decided that our shalom, our vision, our preferred future is better than God's. We want to recreate and rule the world our way. That's not the way it's supposed to go. The way forward and a cure is a restored vertical relationship that puts everything in its proper place that all good things can be in their proper place, that work can be work, parenting can be parenting, food can be food, that we're not going to those things as a source of identity and meaning. It puts them in their proper place that begins to mend that horizontal factionalism that's going on, that divides us. The things that divide us become less important. And the church ought to be the place where this kind of horizontal harmony is on display. But what is that vision? What is a vision big enough for us all? I mean, if we went through and I just started asking the question, well, in your words, vision for humanity, what do you got, right? We'd all have a little different way of saying that. And we'd all use different words for sure, you know, but even just what we're hoping in, you'd give different flavors of what we're going for. We need something bigger. What about our vertical relationship? How do you, I get, I could call somebody that I said something wrong to, but how do I mend a, I don't know, I don't have God's specific phone number. I'm not sure how to call him and work that out. I need some help. So how does that play out? 
Well, the answer to both of those questions is in Paul's last line of this text. He says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The only vision big enough for all of us to get behind is the true story that God is telling about the world. It's gotta be the great, big, grand story that God is telling through his word about creation, about our fall, about the redemption that's available in Jesus, about a a restoration, a period of time where all things are put back into harmony, into its place together. We need something that big, that grand, that amazing that none of us would be able to come up with. None of us would tell the story or write it that way. We need what God has written. We need what God has said about these things to bring us together. And how does that vertical relationship get addressed? It's only through the cross of Christ. That's what Paul's saying. It it is the power of Jesus' death and his resurrection that brings us into right relationship with God. That then begins to bring a unity and a fruit of unity is to have right relationship with God, with self, with others, and with creation. It's only through that unity that Jesus makes possible through his death that we can put our hope in. And that's the good news. That's what the gospel is saying about unity. That's the hope that we have as a church, that it's not gonna be about how well we can all get along together on our own, but that there's a a supernatural power coming to make that possible. And it's the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the centrality of the gospel, Tim Keller talks about two thieves. Talks about moralism and legalism talks about uh, pragmatism and relativism. He says that the key for thinking out implications of the gospel is to consider a third way between two mistaken opposites. It's not a halfway compromise between two, uh, uh, halfway compromise. It does not produce something in the middle, but it's something different than both, he says. He says that we embrace these two thieves, two reasons. One, to avoid Jesus as savior. And two, to keep control of our own lives. It says, we combat these thieves with two truths. I think they'll be up there for you. The truth for moralism is that I am more sinful and flawed than I ever dared believe. And the truth for relativism is that I'm more accepted and loved than I ever dared hope. So we're gonna walk through this text and we're gonna look at each leader that Paul is calling out. We're gonna translate that into our day to see how it's still very much in play. Then we're gonna pick apart how these thieves are at work among the followers of these different leaders. And then we're gonna contrast that with a third option, a better option, a gospel-formed church. Okay, so let's jump right in. Uh, John Scott called them the clicks at Corinth. I kind of like that, that rings. Clicks at Corinth, what's happening here? All of these things are gonna show us that there is a misplaced hope, that there is a broken value system, that there is a broken pathway and a broken version of community. And we're all, it's all pointing to that that's happening amongst us. So this first one, I follow Paul. I follow the original, historic, the right, the OG way, right? Paul, he planted this church. They were all following him at some point, right? And so it's this group that is saying, man, do you remember the good old days when it was us and Paul? Remember sitting around Paul's living room? I don't know if you had one there. It was just us and he just, you know, kind of do his Paul thing. It was awesome. That was church, Remember when, remember when we saw this happen? Oh, that was so amazing. Remember when I knew everybody that got together? Remember when, remember when, remember when? It's not, the problem is not the remembering. That's a good thing. That brings honor to God, what he did. But the problem is with this approach, and it has a misplaced hope. 
because our hope is not in having the right historic way of doing things. Our hope is not in uh, having done everything the same since then. It's, it's this idea that we can end up gripping the past so tightly, we miss our chance to hold on to the future. And so 2,000 years later, we're still doing the same thing, right? This is, this is the Catholic Church saying, we've got capital T truth because our popes are in secession to Peter, the first pope. This is our evangelical tribes who we love to name ourselves after people. And, uh, you know, it's I'm a Calvinist. I follow John Calvin. I'm a Lutheran. I follow Martin Luther. I'm Wesleyan. I follow John Wesley. List goes on, right? But Paul's going to redirect them all from going and pledging their allegiance to him. Because a gospel-formed church rejects moralism that holds on to the present and loses the chance to grip the future. And it rejects relativism that dismisses historically held doctrine when it's no longer culturally convenient to do so. Right? It doesn't move from gospel power through the cross. Paul tells Timothy, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. He tells the church in Ephesus, no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about from every wind of doctrine, right? We want to be people who are deeply committed to the original, to the historic, to the right way of doing things. Well, let's be very clear. That right way is the way of Jesus, right? It's not the way of any other fill in the blank name. It's the way of Jesus and him alone. We want to be a gospel-formed church that holds to the deep truths of the faith, that's anchored in the person and work of Jesus Christ, but that is able to move and, and be a part of a watching world that has questions, that's hurting, that's broken, that can respond to them in real ways. Second leader, I follow Apollos. This is the new, talented, gifted way. You know, Apollos hits the scene after Paul's departure. So he's known throughout the whole New Testament as being this amazing order and charismatic guy and expositor of the scriptures and just, I mean, awesome communicator. And aren't we all drawn to somebody who is communicating unchanging truths in a fresh new way? That's a, that's a, a good thing. In the States, we've got no shortage of uh, influential pastors with lots of reach. The web has made uh, us able to access content like crazy. And so we're all drawn into that. I love this video. We're going to play a video, mix things up just a little bit for you. And uh, it kind of points out and pokes some fun at just how ridiculous we've gotten here. So go ahead and direct your attention to the screen and enjoy. But why is it funny? Yeah, you can clap. That's fine. Just take a little break, mix things up. Make sure you're still awake. Why is it funny? Because it's true, right? Oh, ow, it kind of stings a little bit. Yeah, it's funny because it's true. And it's a sad thing, actually, if you think about where we've gotten to as a, as a people of God, that we're actually approaching our Sundays and our discipleship and our just identity with the church of what can we get out of it, right? And it should sting all of us just a little bit. So Paul's going to rebuke them for chasing after spiritual pizzazz, flash, and bling. The gospel affirms a spiritual hunger to to want to drink deeply and eat richly from the word of God. That's a good thing. It's a good thing to listen to voices that you aren't familiar with, that can challenge and inspire and maybe shape you a little bit. That's the whole point behind, we do a whole series called Voices for that reason, right? We want to have others come and share with us people that we wouldn't maybe normally get to hear. We believe that we're better together. So that's a part of how we get to live that out. And yet, uh, we take it to different levels, don't we, in our hearts? 
I follow Apollos is a broken value system. In the kingdom of God, it's not about how tweetable or eloquent or winsome something is, right? Jesus assigns its value. And with him, it's the first that are last. It's, it's the humble that get honored. It's the interdynamics of the heart that no one sees that matters most to him. And that's so different than what the world is. A gospel-formed church is eager to hear fresh ways of communicating the unchanging truths of the gospel. But it values that communication as much as it makes the most of Jesus and not the communicator. That's the difference. I follow Cephas. Let's jump in the next one. Um, Peter likely traveled to Corinth with his wife uh, after Paul left. Maybe he went there, maybe not. A couple questions about that whole thing, but... um, Peter's a huge figure in the early church. And so they were just drawn, some people were just drawn to Peter, to his Jewishness, to his authenticity, to his proximity to Christ. And so there's, a, there's this idea of like, hey, couldn't we just, I'm not Jewish, but like, what if we were Jewish? Let's be Jewish. And what about the law? The law, at least it's written down. It's not like this spiritual weird moving around thing. It's like black and white. I can follow it. Let's go, let's go back to the law. Let's look at that. And legalism is tempting because we want clear lines between faith and behavior. You know, just last week, I was confessing to one of our staff members, like, it's so easy for me to fall into this works-based mentality where it's my effort, it's my labor, it's my commitment, devotion, whatever, that makes me a good employee or a good pastor or a communicator or whatever. But like we just heard last week, that's, that's missing the point. Verses seven and nine, last week in chapter one, our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful. It's Jesus who sustains me guiltless. It's God whose faithfulness I'm banking on, not my own. And it's a tactic of the enemy to rob a believer's joy in the Lord by encumbering it with legalism and measuring lines. I follow Cephas is a, is a wrong and broken pathway. It's not about what we do. It's about what Christ has done for us. The gospel affirms a desire to do, to be found working when our Lord and Savior comes back. That's a good thing. But it's not, and it rejects the idea that our relationship with God is based on what we're doing. It's fundamentally about what he has done. God is faithful even when we are not. It gives us hope in the midst of life. So a gospel forum church has faith, but it shows up in good works. And those two things go together. Last group, I follow Christ. This is the, I follow my own way, right? And at face value, it sounds like the right answer, right? This is like, you're in youth ministry and we got some, some uh, youth over here. Like, what's the one go-to answer for almost any question? Jesus, right? But in this case, eh, that's wrong. That's not right. And why? Because it's not that we don't follow Christ, right? That's of course. But what Paul's getting at here in this context is that, Underneath the surface of that statement for them, which is the same thing that happens for us, is underneath the surface, that's actually the height of arrogance. It's a pride. It's a, only God can judge me. I don't need you. I don't need to submit. I don't need to, I'm my own. I got this right. It's me and God and I'm good. I don't need his people. I don't need his church. I don't need to follow. And it's, it's a broken version of community. That is not the community that Jesus has defined for us. He calls us members of his family, brothers and sisters in Christ, right? It's always plural. It's us together. It's us with him. So the gospel rejects a hyper individuality that says it's just me and God. Instead, the gospel formed church 
is committed to living us with God together, that we're a part of this together in community. Now, these have been uh, Christian examples, right? But don't think for a minute that this only applies to Christians. This is a human thing. So if you're here and you're not a Christian in the room, I want to challenge you. I can go through a, a list for you. Who do you consider that you follow, right? I'm Buddhist. I follow Buddha. I'm Islam. I follow Muhammad. I, Mormon, I follow Joseph Smith. Even atheists, they have their, their four horsemen and they're following these leaders as they, do, they debate and argue about life and death and God and all of that. Maybe you're an industry person and you're, you're following each tweet and post from Musk or Bezos or Satya or Sandberg or Gates, right? And if I, if I just throw politics out there, or just through a net that just got all of us, right? We're all hooked now because we're following somebody. We're putting our hope in what that person has to say. It's to some extent, if we're honest, we're looking to it to be led, to hear about a, a future that we're attracted to. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, I, I wanna say two things. One, I wanna say that, first of all, that the church admits, and we're admitting today through these scriptures that we have not told you the true story of what God is like, that he's actually united. And where you have experienced the church or Christians being divisive, being argumentative and petty, that's actually telling a lie about who God is. And we're sorry for that. And I hope that Doxa and the churches in the sound can be a place where you experience a different reality, a different witness about who God is, a true story about what God is like, that he is one and that he has made us one. Secondly, I want, I want to challenge you to think likewise. What ways have you participated in? What ways have you gotten caught up in this schism? What aspects of that cutting apart from humanity has actually robbed you of relationships that you're meant to enjoy? And my hope is that you would see Jesus Christ as the one person who is here to heal a fractured vertical relationship that you have with the divine. And that in the healing of that relationship, you might actually get to experience a holistic healing and mending of your horizontal relationships. That's my hope for you. We're all in this. We're all in this one. And honestly, for me, this whole thing's very personal. I can remember, I can still remember, the first time that I heard him. It was about 2008. It's a beautiful summer day in Michigan. I was traveling with... My friends and Sarah, we were four months pregnant with Gabriel. Didn't know him yet, but was excited for him. It was a beautiful July day. And my friend who knows me pretty well said, you gotta listen to this guy. You are gonna, you're gonna I think you're gonna really like him. And he knows me pretty well, so I trusted him. And so I was there on beautiful July day in Northern Michigan that I heard my first sermon from him. I was blown away. I, I had never heard Jesus sounds so amazing. I'd never heard being a man to be so honorable. I never saw that loving my wife and kids could be such a joy. I, I never saw the mission of God to be so clear and compelling, worth giving my life for. I'd heard lots of sermons, but I'd never experienced emotion, let alone a range of emotion. And here in this one sermon, I'm getting a full spectrum. I was hooked. I went back into archives because stuff's online and had an iPod at the time. That was a thing back then. Downloaded a sermon. I listened to a sermon every day for probably three years from that, from that preacher. I'd get people together to listen and discuss it. I started reading the books that he talked about. I started to dream with my wife. What would it be like to be part of that ministry? Oh, it'd be so good. 
And honestly, if you look back on that time, you would think some kind of crazy Paul, Apollo, Cephas, Christ combo had shown up and was available through iTunes. I mean, it really was something. Yeah. And then God actually moved us across the country to be part of this thing. He actually led us to go do that. And we were part of that church for two years. It was a crazy roller coaster ride, right? And it depends on who you ask, but it started, I think, somewhere maybe towards the top of that crest and rode it right down, right off the tracks. Many of you. And that whole, this whole passage is very personal to me. And it should be to many of you. And I confess, I bit wholeheartedly into the forbidden fruit of leader idolatry. And just to be clear, I'm not, I'm not down on the preacher for that, right? Paul's not beating himself or Apollos or Cephas or Christ up. It was my heart that's on display. It's me going after something, putting something on someone else that was never meant to carry that. So was I a fanboy? Yeah, I was for sure. But did God use that? Absolutely. So would I change it? No, no, we shouldn't want to change that because God's grace was at work amidst it. And Doxa, this is our testimony. We were birthed out of destruction. <laughs> we, were, we literally are a testimony of a church that Jesus has sustained, a people of his own possession, he says, out of ashes, out of a public inferno before a whole watching world, our church was not there, but Jesus has kept it going. And look around you with a beautiful, glorious bride at his side. He has kept us going. Amen, you can clap for that. Jesus is amazing. And I don't want us to lose our awe of what God did through that. I don't want us to lose our awe of that. He's amazing. We're not founded on the gifting of a preacher, evangelist, teacher. And you know, no offense, Jeff, you're amazing. We love you. But that's not the point. He would say the same thing. We're founded on Jesus Christ and him alone. So I want to remind us of this. I want us to hold on to this truth that, that Jesus has sustained a church beyond all likelihood and in, a, in an amazing, miraculous way. And so we want to continue forth with this great gift that God has entrusted to us, a people that we get to be a part of, a witness that we get to give in the world. So I want us to be careful. And I want to give us a couple of warnings. I want us to think about and watch ourselves and pay a close attention to how we are participating in schisms because we're not done yet. He's not done with us yet as a church. So I want to give us, I want to call out two pitfalls for us and explain them a little bit. So the first one is that we're to not define ourselves by what we are not to avoid being associated with the past. And I want us to be careful about becoming myopic in ministry philosophy. So let me explain these two things. We don't want to define ourselves because if we define ourselves by what we are not to separate ourselves from the past, we avoid the pain and miss the sanctification that Christ would bring about through our suffering, right? Christ was called a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of sinners. He, was, he humbled himself to be named and numbered among all of us. He was labeled and rejected and cast out by religious elite. He, he did not have a good name among the religious people. No, he didn't. Instead, he chooses to be called, like, hang out with us, eat with us, have dinner with us, be our friend. 
And then he would actually die for us. He would actually die, take on Satan, sin, death, all of it, conquer it by being risen from the grave. It's amazing what Jesus has brought about. And so we need to stop looking through our past with the lens of shame and start looking forward as it being a badge of Christ's honor. It's to his glory that he has kept a church going, that he has kept us going, that he has kept you going in your faith and in your walk. Secondly, docs, I want us to be careful about becoming myopic in ministry philosophy. We see ourselves and talk about ourselves as a church of missional communities because we believe that that's an ideal form for making disciples. We see it rooted in scripture. We see its fruit on mission. It's great. But, but hear this loud and clear. We don't think it's the only way to make disciples. And we don't look down on those who organize differently. It's oftentimes and easy to do this. It happens subtly and slowly, but in order to, if we're thinking in terms of a zero sum game, we're talking about the positives of one, we're talking about the negatives of another. We gotta watch out for that. Instead, we wanna move forward as a church of missional communities that's open-handed and pliable for how the spirit wants to use us because we're gonna have to start doing work and doing this work with a bunch of other churches who don't organize the same way. And if we were to come at it going, oh, it's gotta be this way and here's the we're gonna miss out on chances that the spirit has for us to do his work in the world. So we want to move forward in a way that doesn't leave us myopic in ministry philosophy or else Paul's gonna rebuke us, right? He could say the same thing to us. Was it your ministry philosophy that saved people? No, of course not, of course not. And church, we got a long way before we are substantially different than the church in Corinth on the unity factor. But God is at work. So I wanna take a little time just to encourage you and remind us all of what God is doing in and through uh, our church and around the sound. You've heard Jeff talk about Saturate the Sound. That's a collection of 30 plus churches in the Puget Sound that are committed to gospel saturation through gospel communities on mission. There are six different cohorts meeting across the region. We got to hear from three of them that were part of our annual Voices series this last summer. I get to be part of a cohort here on the east side. It's 16 different leaders from nine churches in our community that get together, that hear each other's stories, that do shared learnings, that pray for each other, that look for ways to serve one another. So I want to take a minute just to brag on one thing that's happening in the midst of that time. There's a, a local church here called Inglewood Presbyterian Church in Kirkland. Uh, they've got a, a solid and steadfast ministry to the neighborhood as a church for the neighborhood. And he loved the leader, the lead pastor of that church, loved our Voices series, loved the content, been following Jeff for a while. And so he reached out and said, hey, was there a way that, if you have any, anybody like kind of developing that would like some reps for preaching and, and just let, let me know and all that. And, you know, the skeptical side, he might be going, oh, great. Like, is this like vacation plan or uh, succession planning or something? It's like, no, no, that's not it. He can get pulpit coverage all he wants through his denomination and he's got no intentions of leaving. He just loves his flock. He wants the people to hear the gospel through other voices and that's a good thing. So now I've got the chance and I'm excited. On February 10th, I'm gonna go and get to share with them and, and share from God's word with them and that's a great gift and we're all a part of that. You're making it possible for me to get to do that and I'm learning and growing and you're helping me even today to be able to serve them by listening. And this pastor, he's the real deal. He took me out for breakfast. He heard my story. He shared with me his. He walked through in detail all the components of their liturgy. They're, they're a little more structured than we are and invited me even. He said, oh, you guys do passing of the peace. Oh, you guys do a benediction. Oh, you guys do prayers. Like you can, you can shape that time. You can lead that time. You can make this what that is. I thought, wow, that's cool. 
You know, it, it's common sense. I mean, honestly, if you step back and go, yeah, that's like, that's not that amazing. It shouldn't be that amazing. But to be honest, it felt pretty foreign that somebody would invite someone that he doesn't totally know to actually shape the experience on a Sunday for his people. That's, that's cool, but it is unique. And my hope and my prayer is that over time, there's just thousands of stories like that. There's so many times where the church is reaching out and serving one another and being a part of it. And it's just, it's just a part of who we are. And I, I, I hope that we catch this church. It's super important because while we have a great gift in Jeff as a lead pastor, lead teaching pastor for us, because he champions this in ways that few others do. And it's really cool. If you've seen him get excited about the unity factor for the church, like, it's so great. And you just see people respond and God uses him to cast a really clear vision for the church. Like he's a, we would be great. Maybe we need to rerun this week for Jeff to do next week. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Cause we don't follow Jeff, right? But my point is this, Jeff could be as fruitful as you would ever dream with leaders. If we, the church don't show up, our witness doesn't change. We have got to be a part of this. We all have a part to play in the way that this works. Paul, Apollo, Cephas, Christ, they weren't divided. The leaders got it together. It was the church divided within herself. And so it's our work, church, family, to be about this type of unity. So let me ask us, we're a regional church. We come from all over the place. So do you know the churches that are where you work, learn, live, and play? Do you know their leaders? Could you maybe pray for them, drive by, See them, call them to mind, lift them up in prayer. Do you know the Christians that you work, live, learn, and play with? Do you know their stories? Could you get them together for a meal, maybe a sharing time? Start agreeing on some fundamentals together so that, and here's the big idea, so that we have a consistent and harmonic witness to the world. That we're all saying the same things about Jesus, that we're all pointing people to him for our hope, that we are living in such a way that it doesn't matter where we get together on Sunday morning, but when we are living out the discipleship in our everyday stuff of life, Jesus is being made much of in a consistent way. And that's our work. That's what we get to be about. So to end our time around the sermon, preparing for tomorrow, okay? Tomorrow's national holiday. We'll be taking time as a na nation to reflect on the life and ministry of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and I kind of hope that this sermon is kind of still lingering a little bit in your head as you, as you take some time. And I hope you do. I hope you don't take Monday as just like a free day off of work and school, but embrace it for the message that's behind it. It's the same message that Paul is delivering to us today through the Corinthians. Dr. King had the same vision for unity among God's people, a vision for harmony and faithful witness to a watching world. So I want to remind us of a slogan that was going on during uh, the Memphis sanitation strikes during, at the time of his assassination. Maybe some of you remember seeing those images on the screen. I wasn't there, but I've been getting to learn a lot about this time lately. I've been blessed by it. It was four simple words. I am a man. And in those four simple words, he's making a profound two-pronged statement. I am a man is a statement about the universal human dignity that is deserved by all of God's creation. It is the unique value that God has assigned to all of mankind because he made us, Imago Dei, in his image, in his likeness. 
that there is inherent value in being a beloved child of God just because you are a child of God. That's how he made you in creation. And I am a man is a statement to that effect to remind us of that, that we are all to be valued and inherently have value just as a creation of God together. So our role as a church is to repent of the ways that we have allowed bias and prejudice to dictate our treatment of others. And where we have power to use that for the good of others. I am a man is likewise a statement of humility. It's redirecting our self-selecting patronage from human leaders. And it's fixing our hope on Jesus alone. It's our role as the church to repent of the ways that we've let leader idolatry lead us into schisms and create a fractured and factional church. It's not God's vision for her. The cross heals our fractured vertical relationships with God so that we can go about the work of having horizontal relationships mended. And that's our work, church. That's what we get to be about. So I hope tomorrow as you take some time that you reflect on his life and ministry, see how it's connected to what we're talking about today and put our hope in Jesus alone, his death and resurrection being the power that could actually unite the church in the whole Puget Sound, the whole nation, the whole world. Go as big as your faith will allow you to pray for. That Jesus's witness would be that powerful through us as people. I'm gonna have us now take a little bit of time and I want us to just make some space in our minds and in our hearts to actually interact with God a little bit here and to pray and to ask him what ways that we have actually bought into leader idolatry and what ways we've participated in that schism. So I'm gonna give us just a few moments. I wanna have you invite you, if it's helpful to you, close your eyes, make some space and confess to God the ways that you have put your hope in man instead of the man, Jesus Christ. Jesus, we want the unity that you have made available to your people. We want to be a people who are unified under your name. We confess that we have not lived unified, that we have contributed in our own ways to leader idolatry, to our own preferred vision for the future. We have not loved our brothers and sisters as we ought, and we have disserviced your goodness and your witness and who you are to the world. And we're sorry for that, God. We don't want that to be true of us anymore. And we thank you. And we have a great hope in you that because of your death, Jesus, and your resurrection, that we have hope for where we have fallen short, you have been faithful. You have never changed who you are, a holy, unified God in love with his bride, healing and mending relationships that are torn apart. And we pray that you would help us by the power of the name of Jesus Christ 
to be able to be about the work of unity through reconciliation in our region. We just wanna own this region, God, that we would do that in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our families, in our households, and in our own hearts. If we're not reconciled to you, God, I pray that today would be the day that Jesus, you would reconcile each and every one of us to yourself, that we would see what you have done to make that possible and that we would respond in faith. We pray that you would do this spirit through your work in us. Jesus, thank you for this time. Thank you for your timeless word that never (laughs) is never to be forgotten and always held on to. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray, amen.